Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision. This is our special Survive and Thrive episode series that uh, we've been doing for a while. We've uh, got a couple episodes out. Um, and when we originally thought about this, uh, we was really talking about how residents, fellows, and young ophthalmologists are surviving and thriving in their training. Uh, we didn't know that the title would be so prescient uh, given the, the COVID-19 situation we find ourselves in. So uh, today we are going to be talking to our, our panelists uh, of advisors. And uh, Blake, why don't you go ahead and take it away, bud? So um, uh, just, uh, I think it's such an important uh, topic um, uh, to be going on right now with everything happening. Uh, how is this affecting young ophthalmologists? And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, most people who are listening to our podcast and off the grid are, are talking about their practices and about their staff, but we're not really thinking about what if you're in the middle of training. So we actually have, um, um, you know, several uh, young ophthalmologists that are sort of in different stages of their, their career, and we wanted to bring them on to talk about how this is affecting them. So if you could just briefly kind of uh, each introduce yourself, we'll start with you, David. Um, so I'm Dave Felsett. I'm a PGY4 down here at Augusta, Georgia at the Medical College of Georgia. Um, I've got about three months left and then I'll be pursuing comprehensive ophthalmology out in Arizona. Um, I'm Nandini Venkateswaran. I'm a cornea fellow right now at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, about three months left. And I'm going to be moving to Boston in September to join faculty at Mass Year. My name is Sheree Faffy. I'm a second year at the Will's Eye Hospital. I have about three months of second year left and then I get to the glory year of third year. Hi, I'm Dagny Zhu. I am entering my third year of private practice in Southern California. I'm a cornea refractive surgeon. We just want to thank you guys for coming on. And I want to I kind of want to start with the residents because, you know, we need to check in on, on you all right now. This is a tough time for everyone. Um, I think we, we sometimes overlook how this is impacting residents. We know how it, we see how doctors and nurses are being impacted. We see how patients and family members are are uh, you know sort of being impacted but residents I think a lot of times are overlooked and so we want to check in with you guys. Um, Sheree I'm going to start with you and I just want to ask you know how are you doing right now? What's different? What are you still engaged in and how has this uh, sort of this process kind of changed um, your day-to-day your, your -day operations at Wills? Yeah absolutely. First of all thank you so much for checking in on us. We really appreciate it. It's such a different and, and kind of unnerving time for a lot of us. Um, I mean, week by week, everything changes in terms of our, uh, you know, expectations for when and how we're seeing patients and how we're protecting ourselves and our patients. So, you know, I can tell you that at the beginning of last month, this was kind of, we were aware that this was a risk, but hadn't really changed much of, you know, how we saw or handled seeing patients. And, you know, just over the last few weeks, um, we've really transformed our residency into where our clinics are quite downscheduled. We're seeing really only urgence and emergence. Um, one of our residents is doing an awesome job spearheading our telemedicine efforts um, so that we're able to still see our patients in a timely fashion and determine if uh, we need to see them in person or if it's safer to keep them at home. Um, and then from our emergency room side, we're still open and willing to see all emergencies, um, all patients who walk through. Um, and just have a really rigorous uh, screening examination to determine um, how much 
uh, we need to be protecting ourselves and our patients that are in the waiting room while we are examining those patients. Um, so, so a lot has changed in those recommendations for you know, how we protect ourselves and how we protect, uh, protect our patients are changing really week by week. So that's pretty anxiety provoking as well. And uh, especially in Philadelphia where things will change on a weekly basis, we're not entirely sure you know, how much longer we'll be functioning as ophthalmology residents versus if we might be um, deployed to work in the main hospital. Yeah, so are you seeing colleagues, you know, who are also traditionally not um, managing ward patients being pulled in? I mean, sure, is that, is that what's happening? Definitely in New York. I'd say the majority of my friends who are in ophthalmology are no longer really, unless they are, you know, chiefs at a service, they're not really seeing ophthalmology patients. They've mostly been deployed either to the um, inpatient wards or, you know, the VA um, to help staff those. I think the same thing has happened in Michigan. Um, hasn't happened here yet, but we are in the, you know, plan for um, potentially residents who may be deployed to work in the ER or on inpatient wards. David, talk about where you're at right now. Talk about your institution and, and um, sort of what's happening uh, in, in your neck of the woods. Sure. Thanks, Blake. Um, you know, I think the one thing that our hospital has done a really great job of is planning ahead. Um, we're not at a point like Atlanta or New York or Michigan, um, but we're treating it like we are. And so we're planning ahead. Um, you know, we're also at the same point where we're seeing everything emergent, urgent basis. Um, as far as surgical volumes go, you know, most of our elective procedures are, are completely over with. Um, and so that's really impacting our surgery volumes. Um, as far as cataract numbers go, I know some seniors that have put that off towards the end of the year. Um, and they're now uh, struggling to get their numbers. Um, and so, you know, that's been a major change for most of us. Um, and it's going to impact us probably for the upcoming years we transition to private practice. Um, I was lucky to get most of my procedures done during the first part of this year. Um, and so now I'm kind of rolling into glaucoma and retina. Um, but I think it's been pretty hard hit for others. Uh, Nandini, what is what is happening at Duke? You're a cornea fellow with uh, at Duke uh, with Priya and and others, uh, Dr. Gupta, I should say. She's a good friend. Um, how are things at Duke right now? I would say similar to what Sherry and David have been saying. Um, pretty much towards the last few weeks of March, we've consolidated our clinics, at least in the cornea service, where most providers are having one day of clinic every other week. Uh, my co-fellow and myself are kind of on the front lines, we're seeing mostly all the urgent, emergent patients doing any of the, the dehist PKs or the therapeutic PKs that need to be done. Um, the institution itself, in terms of all of the services, are kind of consolidating as well, um, screening patients at the door, making sure all the providers have protective equipment um, prior to seeing patients. Um, from a fellow standpoint, I think things have kind of trickled down most, at least for corneal procedures, the majority of them are elective. So our cataracts, our transplants, our LASIK PRK cases are um, pretty much at a standstill at the current moment, unless the patient has extenuating circumstances. But I'm thankful to have done quite a bit prior to all of this starting. So that's the positive um, in, in, this, in this current time in training. So Dagny, you are out in California. You are a young ophthalmologist who is doing um, I guess, an anterior segment refractive practice. Um, what are things like for you? Are you guys shut down? Are you still able to see some patients? Are you doing telemedicine? What's your day-to-day -day looking like, Dagny? Yeah, so we're actually pretty lucky in uh, Los Angeles, Orange County in terms of the case 
explode of COVID-19. We haven't exploded as they would have predicted based on our population. Um, I think it's because we started the quarantine pretty early, like two weeks earlier than New York, and it, it luckily has seemed to make a difference. They say we're going to peak in the next 10 days. So um, we are still taking the same precautions that all of you guys are across the country. So for me, we basically uh, slowed down for the past two weeks or maybe three weeks ago. We've furloughed about 80% of our employees. Um, I'm not doing any surgery at all, which is really frightening for a refractive practice. You know, um, our revenue is dependent on elective surgeries like LASIK and I do a lot of premium IOLs and the fact that we're basically having zero revenue right now is pretty scary for me as a young ophthalmologist and an owner of the practice. Um, but, you know, we are banking on the fact that, you know, we'll come back strong. So one of the ways that we're hoping to do that is we are going to start some telemedicine, not to see like our follow up, what well, we will, but Part of the reason is also to see some consults, actually, LASIK consults and cataract consults, new patients via telemedicine. You know, I've had my staff pull up some of the no-shows from before, um, where we have leads, uh, or some of the patients who didn't book before, and um, hopefully, you know, some of them aren't coming in because, you know, they're obviously scared of the pandemic going on, but hopefully they'll be amenable to telemedicine so we can at least get the conversation going about what LASIK surgery is like or what cataract surgery is like, what kind of different options are out there. So we can at least form that relationship and, you know, um, even discuss, you know, the financial aspects of it. And if the patient is able and willing to, we can at least get them on the schedule so that, you know, when all of this is over, we can hit the OR running. So that's kind of how we're using it. Telemedicine is such a such a hot topic right now with everything going on. It's the safest way for us to connect with our patients. And I think many of us who are in private practice like you are, are, are sort of implementing this because it's the only chance for us to connect with our patients. I'm curious on the training end, are any of you who are currently uh, in training, are, are your institutions using telemedicine? And if so, uh, you know, what software, software platforms are you using and how has the experience been? Yeah, so I, I can uh, start this off. Um, our institution has uh, launched a platform for COVID-19 screenings. Um, we use the platform Amwell. Um, it has both mobile and desktop versions. Um, and so those that are staying at home that are not in clinic, um, this has been a good resource for us to just stay busy and feel like we're helping out and doing something that's worthwhile. Um, you know, I've seen plenty of people call in that are pretty worried about this and it's nice to offer this either some reassurance or to send them for screenings and for testing. Um, we're not doing anything in clinic as far as telemedicine is concerned yet, um, but that's something that we'd be interested in the future, I'm sure. So David, will, yeah, sorry, real yeah. quick, just to follow up, um, that's not necessarily ophthalmology patients, correct? These are patients who are at home right now wondering if they need to come in and get screened for COVID-19. Is that correct? Just to follow up. Right, yeah, and it's, it's a way to keep people out of the ER that potentially don't need to be there quite yet um, and decrease the, the burden on urgent cares and surrounding clinics. Um, it's a great service. It's uh, quick and easy. Um, it gives great access across the state. And from what I understand, um, our, our facilities are really running quite fast as far as the testing capacity goes. So it's a good service. 
Shereen? At Wills, we, um, it's actually pretty great. One of our residents started a, a really push for a telemedicine initiative and it's been um, really fun to have this resident led service where we've been defining best practices for seeing patients from um, cornea to our general clinic, to glaucoma, potentially retina, um, looking at what services are currently available to have patients do um, you know, whatever testing that they can do at home before they see us. Um, and then we use a service based off of our EMR, which is NextGen, uh, to be able to connect with patients um, through the phone or through video. Um, right now, it's mostly for either patients that we have been following who we need to continue to follow. So we have um, you know, a list of diagnoses that we are currently deeming appropriate for telemedicine follow-up. Um, we do see new consultations and then determine if they need to come in and see us. And then finally, for our emergency room follow-ups, again, we have a list of diagnoses for which it would be more appropriate for these patients, safer for them to follow up um, at home via telemedicine um, rather than in person. That's been, really, they that's getting, been a really fun project. Are they getting slit lamp exams and things like that as well? Or, or, or what, what's sort of the home testing uh, as well that you guys are, are using? So home testing right now is, is very basic. Obviously we're looking into other ways that we could get technology into patient homes, but for right now it's really, you know, what technologies can they download on their phone that would allow them to test their vision, their color plates um, and, and things of that sort. We have guidelines for how these patients can take pictures of um, their anterior segment um, and send them to us. Um, and we're, we're trialing that now. Yeah, it's interesting Gary, because Go ahead, Dagny. Oh, I just, I've heard some clinics are doing drive-through pressure checks, IOP checks, like from the car. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has been doing that or considering that. <laughs> That's great. Just with their finger, right? They're just sort of... Because <laughs> pressure is one of those things that you really, you know, it's a vital sign of the eye, but it's really hard for patients to check at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's my feeling on that, because you're right. There are people doing that. I've had several phone calls about that exact thing. And... You know, my feeling is if, if you really needed to check the pressure that bad, uh, that's someone that you would bring into your clinic. You know what I mean? Like we, we're still seeing patients who have, you know, end-stage glaucoma, max topicals, et cetera. Um, so if it's really that important to do a tonometry, we would simply have them come on into our clinic for an urgent, not emergent exam. Um, for people that are just checking it, just to check it, uh, to me, it's almost kind of like almost trying to create a revenue stream. And, and I just don't know if that's the, the right why. You know, you always got to start with your why. I don't know if that's the, the right reason to do a drive-through clinic personally. Gary, I don't know how you feel about drive-through clinics, but, but for me, it's like, you know, I feel like we can handle most things via telemedicine and things that are urgent or emergent, we can have them simply come on in. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you my spiel or, or what I think about that. You know, I think one thing that we can be doing is something like what David said, you know, trying to help screen patients from a general medical population, just, just trying to help out. I think that's one thing that we can all consider doing. Um, I also think that there are some newer applications that are coming online that will likely bring telemedicine forward um, by light years when this is all said and done. Uh, one of the things I've mentioned a couple times, and you know, no financial interest in this whatsoever. It's a foundation called keepyoursite.org. Um, Sean Yanchulov and, and I think some of his colleagues started this and it, it allows patients to test their home, uh, their central and their peripheral visual fields at home. Now, is it perfect? And is it, you know, is it maybe a little bit difficult for some 
who are not tech savvy or, you know, we even have trouble with, you know, our, our patients who've taken visual fields with a you know, technician helping them, you know, so, so some of this is a little bit of a learning curve, but it does provide a more objective way to check someone's, especially their central vision for those patients who have macular degeneration um, and wondering if they need to come in and get their Lucentis injection or, or you know, ILEA, et cetera. I think this could be a way to help, especially, uh, you know, check out those, those uh, macular degeneration patients. Um, as a matter of fact, I pointed a friend whose, whose grandfather was wondering, you know, whether or not he should come in for a, you know, injection. I pointed him to this, her to, you know, send him there. And so I do think we're going to have better tools right now. It's probably a little clunky where we're all trying to figure out how to do this. And, um, but I think it's going to get better. And honestly, this, there may be a role for this when telemet or when, when patients, you know, can come in. And, and this whole thing is over, there still may be a big role for telemedicine ophthalmology, depending on how this plays out. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and I think that's why we're going to get more granular into uh, next week and talk about some different platforms perhaps our, our uh, colleagues can use throughout in training. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about, speaking of training, you know, one thing that a few of you have mentioned already um, is, you know, that, that, you know, at this point you were expecting to do be doing cataract surgery, you're expecting to be doing corneal surgery, and now here we are with several months where we're not going to be able to do that. Um, it kind of, I, I wonder where that training is going to come from. Maybe, um, uh, Nandini, you can talk about a Duke, like, you know, what kind of surgeries are you doing right now? And do you feel, you know, like, like you know, are there, are there some fellows, maybe not you specifically, but some fellows that feel they might need to do another year of fellowship, or they might need to, you know, um, you know, do a private fellowship again for a year to kind of uh, get their reps, so to speak? Yeah, so I think the majority of cases that are being done now, at least, are emergent cases, so ruptured globes or, um, you know, patients that have emergent glaucoma emergencies, retinal detachments, et cetera. But from an anterior segment perspective, for cornea cataract, we're not really doing um, much at all. In terms of training, it's a tough time. Like, I'm going to be in attending, apparently, in five months, and this is this valuable three months where I need, like, Terry Kim and like Melissa Dalvoy to be sitting next to me telling me what to do and, and walking me through those tougher cases. Um, but I think it's important for us to keep our skills fresh even while we're not doing stuff. Um, I know like some of my, one, some of my attendings have actually offered to host wet labs where we can just go take models and just practice like iris suturing, um, just practice Yamani, just keep your hands moving. Um, I've been taking the time to just start to learn to edit my videos, watch my own videos. I think watching a lot of these grand rounds, Ike Ahmed has a bunch of great grand rounds cases. Um, even listening to grand rounds, your own institution, I've been listening to some of my residencies, grand rounds at Bascom Palmer, just to keep my mind fresh with ophthalmology stuff, I think is important. But talking to other fellows, I think it's a similar, con a similar feeling. We're all kind of nervous. I think we are worried about our numbers to a degree because we're supposed to be doing this by ourselves in a few months. In terms of private practice fellowships, I think there might be an increasing role for those um, because they could offer increased practice for those skill sets that we're not able to do. I don't know that any of my friends or my colleagues have really brought that up to me, and I'd be curious to see what other people think. Um, but I think it's certainly something to consider, um, especially for perhaps second year and third year residents as they're thinking about their future plans. Yeah, David, you, you're a third year, and, you know, this is the time when, you know, in, in, at my program at University of Kentucky, you know, we, we did surgery throughout, but we really were sort of surgical heavy, especially with cataracts during our third year, and, 
you know, I can't imagine missing that time because it's sort of like the thing you wait for your entire residency is to really get all those cataracts or all, you know, what, what you're really interested in. How is that going to impact not only, you know, your training in terms of your skill set development, but, you know, potentially getting a job, you know, and, and someone's going to ask you, how many cataracts did you do? You know, what did you do during the shutdown? You know, what do you think, how do you think this is going to have ripple effects, not just on you, but other, you know, PGY4s who are out there getting ready to launch? Right. I, I think that you bring up so many great points. Um, you know, this is really a dual-edged sword for me. Um, so I got a lot of my bulk of cataract surgery within the first six months of my senior year. Um, I was up to about 200 cases by January and capped out about 220 before this all hit. Um, having said that, I've now been sitting without doing anything surgery-wise, you know, elective um, for about a month. And I'm, you know, depending on how long this drags out, may not until I start my next job. Um, and so it's a little bit frustrating to see, well, if I start back, you know, September operating, I will have not done a cataract case in six months. And I know a lot of other people who start up cold and that's just the reality they face and they get through it. Um, and I think that's really important for people who are coming out in comprehensive or even after fellowship to have a really great mentor um, that's gonna meet you on the other side um, to help you get started. And for me, that would be the case. Um, you know, for those that uh, put things off to the very end to try and get things ramped up for fellowship, uh, maybe now sitting around 90 cases for primary FACO, um, I'd be really worried um, I would have not been ready to, to handle anything on my own at 90 cases. Um, I think it was about by maybe case 140 where I started to feel more com uh, comfortable and confident in my skill set. Um, so I do see that programs may start implementing surgical volumes earlier in training and maybe trying to spread it out over the three years more evenly instead of just um, lump summing it towards the third year. That may be one technique. Um, and then as um, Nandini brought up these private practice fellowships maybe <clears throat> um, more of a viable option for some people who have been kind of caught up in the pickle of all this and not knowing what to do and yet not having the flexibility to roll with the SF match this year or next. Yeah, and I think that that, that kind of speaks to, to one of the questions that we got. We're getting a couple questions and um, thank you all. Thank you everyone for, for listening and, and to, to, to watching this with us. If you have questions, please enter them there at the bottom and we'll do our best to get to them. Dan mentions, hi guys, I'm a PGY3 in the Midwest and curious to ask the panel their thoughts on something I've been hearing. I've been told the current PGY3 class may be one where fellowship is a must versus being optional due to the lower surgery numbers with a decline in elective cases. What do y'all think about that? I mean, I guess it just depends on the number that you're at right now. Do you think that a fellowship is a must at this point? I think so much that depends on your, your primary goals after graduation. You know, one thought I had is um, for people who want to get volume, um, an international medical mission may, may be a way to do that rather quickly. Um, it's just a thought I had. Sheree, what do you think? You're, you know, you're a PGY3, correct? Mm -hmm. So you're in this situation yourself. What are your thoughts? I mean, you may have already been thinking fellowship, but say you were someone who was thinking about just going straight out into the practice. Do you think this would this experience would change your perspective on that? I mean, it's definitely something that I'm very concerned about right now, um, especially since, you know, beginning in June, we're, that's when we start the bulk of our cataract experience. Um, and so it's really unclear when things will get back to normal. And 
Um, I, yes, I was someone who was thinking about fellowship beforehand, but it's even higher on my radar now, even if it's, you know, I, I really want to get the skill to, to operate well on my patients and safely on my patients. And I think, you know, having that year um, to be able to develop that and also know that there's another year where, you know, if the numbers start off low in June, at least I can have hopefully another year to, to work on that skill set. I think this is only further reinforce that for me. Um, so yeah, I think it's something that a lot of my co-residents are, are thinking about in the back of their minds right now is, you know, how does this impact our, our, our choices moving forward if this continues on into June, which is when we start operating in July, which is when we really start uh, ramping up. And Dagny, I want to bring you in here. The, uh, well, there's another comment here from Jay Kuhn. Dagny, I want you to, to, to mention this or to talk about this. He, he, sa he or she says, uh, I'm a PGY4 with a backloaded schedule, only at 120 FACOs, planning to go into comp practice in August. This has been devastating. I'm wondering if other trainees are looking at having their residency extended or graduation delayed. What are your thoughts about this? I haven't discussed this with my, with my future employers. So um, can you kind of talk about being a few years out if you were this person, you know, what kind of advice would you have for, for, for he or she? I think, you know, it's going to be up to their residency program, whether they will extend the training. I, I don't think that's a bad idea, but I feel like logistically probably a lot of them will not. And so if, she are, if you already have a job lined up in a comprehensive practice, I think you know, you should have the confidence that you can, you can make it through. I mean, I, when I graduated after fellowship, I actually had a six to nine month gap where I wasn't working at all because I was trying to find a job. Um, and I was worried during that time, you know, would I lose my surgical skills? Um, but once you hit practice, you kind of hit the ground running. And I, I've said this before, I think your first year of private practice is almost like a mini fellowship. So um, there's lots of room to grow, and the fact that you will be at a group practice where you have mentors who can help you, it will almost be like an extension of your residency or fellowship. And so I think, you know, have confidence in yourself, kind of make the best of it. You know, when there's lemons, make lemonade. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, if, if there's no other option, you know, um, I think, you know, you should go into the job being confident in the skill set that you have, but also know that you still have opportunity and time to grow. No one ever goes into practice knowing everything already, even after having completed fellowship. So I would just say to yeah. stay positive, you know, and try to learn from your mentors as much as possible, your uh, employers. And Gary, Gary, I've heard you talk about this before. Like, um, you know, when I read that question, he, he or she's at 120 FACOs. I've heard you talk about this. Like, I don't know. There's a huge difference between 120 FACOs and like 187 FACOs. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like in That's terms of the, the tiers where you get better. I almost wonder if you're if you were at 20 FACOs, different story. But if you're at 120, you know, I don't know, Gary. I, I think that you could. You, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I think that this is this is a perfect person that could go do one of those medical mission trips that David mentioned, or you know, be doing practicing on their own and be just fine. Yeah, I think that there are different, I mean, I've heard people say there's sort of different tiers at which you get better and the learning curve is very steep. So between zero and a hundred, you know, you're going to probably develop most of your cataract skills. You know, you might be at a hundred or 120 cases, you might be 80% as good as you're ever going to be. I mean, maybe not, but you know, I think that at a hundred, you kind of know the basics and yeah, can you still get in trouble? Of course, there's still a lot to learn. Everyone's a little bit different, but I think kind of between 75 and 150, somewhere in that range, you kind of get the basics down. 
I don't think you make that next leap until you're at like 500, you know, because then you're really getting into more like getting more efficient in the eye, understanding some of the more nuances. But then I don't think you hit another, um, you know, plateau until like 2000 or maybe more. And then it's like 10,000. So, you know, we, we, this is a nonlinear process. And, and I don't think, I think people should recognize that. I mean, we, we've definitely um, been learning a lot about exponential growth lately, unfortunately, but you know, cataracts are like that. So I wouldn't necessarily, I, so I agree exactly what you're saying, Blake, is that you know, there's not a huge difference between 120 and 180 or whatever. I also think that, you know, this is when leaders in our field and people who are um, a few years removed and are now looking to hire in incoming residents or newly graduated fellows have to lead. And you cannot have the same level of expectation of what, you know, the, the experience level is going to be because guess what? No one could, could have guessed this is going to happen. And maybe there's going to be a little bit more um, handholding, mentorship, training on the job that's going to happen. That's life. And that's really on us as, you know, ophthalmologists who are out there who want to bring up the next generation and lead them, you know, well, we may have to do a little more teaching, but you know, that's a good experience also. Um, I'll kind of get off my soapbox, but you know, I think it is, it's up to us to help, help our younger colleagues bridge that gap. It's not up to them to figure out how to magically, you know, be, get training during this time. Um, I will say that for all, all the uh, residents out there who are, who are finding themselves with a little extra time, um, Uday Devkin, friend, you know, just great guy. Um, Uday has cataractcoach.com. You know, if you want to engage your mind and, and, and learn about situations that maybe you have not currently experienced in your case volume of 100 or 120 or even 500, Uday has hundreds of videos. They're only like three to five minutes long. They go through very interesting things that happen and you know, it's maybe not quite as good as being in surgery yourself, but you're gonna learn so much from going through that. And I would challenge every resident to make it your mission to get through every one of those, those cataractcoach.com videos because they're so fantastic. Have you guys seen can, this? Have, have you guys seen cataractcoach.com? I, oh, yeah. I can second that. I find it so helpful. It's great. I still watch Cataract Coach. Yeah, um, if, if they're, like, you know, like you just want to remind yourself of situations or he'll have tips on like a small eye or how to do an IOL calculation or just to refresh steps of an anterior vitrectomy. It's so nice to just have that quick reference. And he does a really nice job of like walking you through it. Um, I highly recommend it for everyone. I used it a ton my last year of residency as well. Yeah. You know, also iTube clearly has a, a really nice, um, um, you know, set up with tons of great video. So there's lots of great video content out there. Um, we can't use this, this time as an excuse to rest on our laurels or to say, well, you know, I couldn't find anything to do. This is the time when you need to be reading, studying for those OCAPs. Uh, Cherie, I hope you're studying for your OCAPs. I've heard that that's not going to get canceled. Is that right? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the story with OCAPs? Because I'm sure as a resident, this is a topic of great um, concern, I'm sure. Yeah. So they were initially scheduled for, you know, last weekend or I think two weekends ago at this point. Um, and then we got a notification, I think basically the week leading up to it saying that, you know, the Prometric centers were shutting down. And so they would be looking into an alternative 
And I think just from a from a resident standpoint, our you know as residents, we're kind of preoccupied with the current medical environment, and so for a lot of us, it sort of went to the backside of our minds. We weren't studying for it as intensely as we were before, um, and not because you know not because we're not doing anything. At least at Will's, you know, we are seeing patients. We are fully staffing our eye emergency room. We're seeing consults. Um, and, you know, COVID or not, we're seeing these patients. Um, and then we have some residents in other programs who are, who are seeing COVID patients. And so I can't even imagine them trying to, to study for this exam right now. Um, so I think for a lot of us, it just sort of fell to the back of our mind. And then there was actually a petition led by um, a resident from, um, I apologize, I don't remember which program, but a program where they had uh, collected over 500 signatures of residents asking if it would be possible to to not have the OCAPs this year, just given the extenuating circumstances. And we got an email from the AAO that was it was very reasonable, saying that you know at the end of the day, I think it's going to be up to our program directors to decide if it's a good idea for us to take the OCAPs examination this year, um, and it would be provided in an online format in some way. And we have an interesting comment here sort of related to that. Um, I think it's from Sila here. She says, uh, another interesting question is whether it's ethical for the AAO to administer OCAPs in the middle of a pandemic when many residents are currently being pulled to medicine on the front lines while others have partners who are losing their jobs or family members who are ill. They actually released a statement yesterday stating that they want the test administered by the end of May, which based on current projections seems unlikely to be in the clear in terms of the pandemic. I think maybe I could speak a little bit to this. Um, I'm not sure how every program uses the data from OCAPS. Um, I think each one's unique, um, but the main point of the test is to help you compare yourself to your peers in preparation for the written um, board exams. Um, and so for me coming out of training, the OCAP was kind of my, I wanna make sure I'm ready for the written. And so I was kind of still looking forward to taking the test just as one more practice round. Um, I think other people view it as just a one added stress and I get that. Um, and so I think the way they're handling it may be appropriate in a setting where there's still maximum flexibility to take it or not take it depending on program director um, choice. Um, and I, I guess in that standpoint, um, programs need to be flexible with their residents. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, I totally agree. I, I would hope that I think you know, certain programs such as in New York City where a lot of the, the residents are getting deployed, it's very, those are very different and stressful circumstances um, as compared to, you know, some of us in other locations. So I, I would think that program directors would be very accommodating um, and thoughtful about that as well. From a fellow standpoint, our oral boards were canceled um, a few weeks before they were supposed to go on, which was, you know, also kind of stressful because you spend about six to eight weeks practicing for this test that you've never taken before, like an oral exam. Um, but the ABO has been very receptive. They sent out a survey um, asking if we'd be interested in having a virtual exam. And that's something that they're now starting to think of and I think actually may put into effect by the end of the year, which is a first time initiative for the ABO. So that will help a lot of us in terms of, you know, financial expenses, having to travel to another location to take a test. Um, I think that'll be a nice step forward for us. Yeah, we've got, um, I want to switch gears just a little bit um, in the time we have remaining. Um, you know, Dagny, I want to talk a little bit about something I saw on Instagram, um, something you uh, were, were sort of in, involved in in terms of raising awareness about 
um, some of the racial overtones of COVID-19. Um, you know, obviously, you know, <laughs> these, these viruses, you know, don't, don't pick, you know, where they start and who they infect and all that sort of thing. Um, are you, are you being negatively impacted by some of those um, aspects of what's happening in this pandemic? And would you care to comment at all about how do we, how do we advocate and, and how do we come alongside um, our, our, our Asian brothers and sisters who are going through a, a particularly difficult time? This is hard enough as it is, but um, do you care to comment on that? Sure. Uh, thanks for bringing up the issue, actually. I mean, this is a kind of unexpected, but um, I guess sometimes understandable side effect of pandemic when people are just afraid and, you know, when you are, you know, stressed and afraid, what do you do but try to place blame? And so unfortunately, the Asian American or Asians all across the world have become targets of that. And I'm sort of lucky to be in Southern California where I'm a little bit sheltered from this. I mean, I went to a high school where we were 75% Asian. I practice at Rolling Heights, which is 80% Asian. Um, so I personally have not received in person any racist remarks, but I certainly have heard many stories from my colleagues um, across the country who uh, have had patients who've refused their care because of their race. Um, and they are doctors on the front line. So it's kind of crazy that this is happening. Um, and you hear news reports all the time of, you know, innocent elderly people and even children being stabbed just because someone thought that, you know, these were Chinese people getting um, infecting um, those around them. And a lot of the times, uh, these people, the victims aren't even Chinese, you know, they're just any, any Asian who looks Chinese. And so it's really bringing out the worst in a lot of people. And so some um, part of the downtime that I have now, I've been trying to actually use social media and a group of us doctors on social media are using this time to spread awareness um, about this issue. We just released a video today which we made um, coming from Asian American doctors, actually sharing personal experiences, sharing, you know, we're holding signs, sharing actual quotes of real insults that were directed to us or our families. And then we're also sharing, um, you know, our identities as human beings, mothers, and doctors, a lot of whom are actually on the front line who are trying to fight this. So hopefully with that, you know, we're spreading some awareness and kindness is really all we want to do. But um, a lot of the feedback we've gotten has been really positive so far. We've gotten a lot of shares, but there will always be those hateful comments in there. You know, no matter what you say, they are just looking for a place to place blame, you know, which is really unfortunate, but we're doing the best that we can. Yeah. Well, I, I find, and I think we've all seen this, that stressful situations um, do not make character. They reveal character. Um, and so I think sometimes in these kind of times, um, whatever is inside oozes out. Um, I see the, the, the other side of that where people who are filled with goodness and kindness and love, um, you're seeing that come out of them in this situation and we're seeing just some amazing heroes through all this. Um, one, just to pivot a little bit and, and talk a little bit more about that, you know, we were talking before we, we started that, um, you know, some of us feel like we wish we could do more. You know, we feel this I think David meant, sort of coined the term survivor guilt or, you know, sort of feeling like we're on the bench when we see our, our brothers and sisters in arms who are, you know, intubating people, managing vents, you know, you know, saving lives, which, you know, when I was, you know, 16 and dreaming about being a doctor, that's what, you know, 
I've envisioned myself doing someday. And here I am sitting at home, you know, wishing that I had the skill set or ability to, you know, impact or fight this disease process. Um, Nandini, are you feeling that at all? Are you feeling like you wish you could do more uh, during this time? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a weird, it feels, I'm very like, I think baseline anxious um, because I, I just feel like we're constantly given information, new statistics. And I think talking to my friends in other cities, I, I feel a lot of their anxiety as well in terms of the, the uncertainty as to whether or not they'll be called to work on the wards, et cetera. We at Duke have not yet been in that situation, but I'm certainly trying my best to be as helpful as I can for my patients. Um, I think patients are really appreciative at this time when you take the time to just answer their uh, U-chart messages or give them a call back because they don't know what's important and what's not important and they just wanna know their doctor is thinking about them and that it's okay to not come in for an appointment. And so I think at least from that aspect, that's something that we can all do if we're not at the front lines. And, and hey, if the situation arises where we do have to go in and help, I think you know, we'll do what we need to do. We may need to refresh our internal medicine knowledge, but um, I think it can be done. And at least the feedback I've been getting is that the teams have been very receptive and supportive of residents when they're coming from other specialties joining in in terms of helping them, you know, feel co competent and comfortable taking care of these very sick patients. Well, it's definitely something that, um, that that's, uh, you know, happening around the world. Gary and I had a chance to, to interview some colleagues of the day from London um, that are actually on the front lines fighting that. So, and that's kind of part of the beauty of these podcasts is, is the opportunity to, to learn from, from, you know, people all over the world. And Gary, I do want to just take a second to, again, thank the support of Jonathan and Johnson Surgical uh, for sort of bringing us all together to talk about these important issues. Um, you know, David, can you kind of uh, piggyback on, on, on what we were just talking about uh, with, with the survivor guilt, uh, quote unquote? I just think it brings up a lot of um, interesting feelings. I was taking a walk with my wife today and she was, you know, we were going over what are we going to talk about on this podcast. And, you know, we started talking about, you know, how this has impacted our life. And then we kind of stood back and thought, you know what, this is, this has not impacted our life in any degree or fashion compared to people who have either a suffered uh, a loss of a family member or financially have hit a hardship. Um, people are losing homes, mortgages over this. Um, people are having to fight this on the front lines in the ICU and fearing contracting it and bringing it home. Um, and so we, we kind of stood back and looked at our life and thought, you know, everything's okay right now for us. And we, we have no reason to really um, complain. We should just be more content with how things are. Uh, we're very blessed to have this time to be at home a little bit more and maybe take a step back and take a breath. Um, by that same token, I do feel a lot of survivor guilt thinking that, man, maybe I could be doing more. Um, so it does bring up a lot of complex feelings. I will say on the same token, uh, apologize, but on the same token, when we do get to see patients, like when patients come in through our ER or in the clinic, it's, it has taught me to feel very, um, again, reminded of why I am lucky to do this. The fact that I get to leave my house and take care of people and reassure them. And a lot of the patients that we're seeing today are just so you know, grateful that a doctor is available to see them for their concern. And that's just been such a, you know, a humbling experience in and of itself. So in the ways that we can give back, I felt very lucky to be able to be a part of that. And we felt really supported from our institution um, for making sure that if we feel unsafe, that they have um, you know, instituted the right measures to make us feel as safe as possible with these patient interactions, whether that's 
you know, the, the bigger breath shields, the appropriate masks, the important, uh, appropriate PPE, and even to making sure that we're, we're well fed. We have an attending um, who has graciously, um, you know, made sure that we, we do have a meal, um, either for the lunch or dinner shifts that we're working, which come on, we're so lucky for that. We're, I'm a resident, I love free food. So um, in, the, in the ways that we can give back, I felt very grateful to have that opportunity to, to be there for someone in some way. Yeah, do you guys think this is gonna change the way patients interact with physicians? I mean, I feel like we've thought of healthcare as this commodity that is like, well, if I don't like you, I'll find another doctor down the street who will take care of me. And, you know, there's you know, not to say that that's the average patient. I think it's, it's, it's the rarity, but it still comes up enough that um, I think a lot of times doctors have really felt um, unappreciated. Um, do you guys think this changes the perspective of the general populace for what we do try to do for patients? Dagny, what are your thoughts on that? I do think, or I at least hope that it does increase, you know, the kind of lost respect for doctors that we've been seeing over the years. I actually just gave a uh, webinar, uh, a CE webinar to local optometrists about how to use social media for their practice. And one of the reasons I pointed out why doctors should be using social media is to reestablish that connection with our patients. Um, you know, with administration and billing and documentation, we're spending, you know, less than 10 minutes with each patient, we're losing that connection. And so where are patients turning to, they're going to um, sort of pseudoscience experts, a lot of they're learning a lot of misinformation online. And so um, because of this, <clears throat> you know, the, the loss of this relationship that we have patients, patients continue to lose trust in what we're saying, and they're turning to misinformation online. So I really think that, um, it's up to us as physicians to kind of reestablish that relationship any way that we can. I do hope that, you know, with this pandemic, um, patients do see us in a different light and that we're kind of not the same as the hospitals or insurance companies. We're really just the ones on the front lines trying to, you know, improve their healthcare. We're fighting for them. Um, but, you know, it may, it may not be enough. We may have, there's a lot more that we need to do, I think to reestablish our, our kind of respect um, in our patient's eyes. Yeah. I think to piggyback off what um, Dagny's said, you know, COVID really has changed the way that we interact with patients in the room, at least for the short term. Um, for me, um, you know, we try and live in our conversation with a soot lamp. Um, I walk into the room with a mask and, um, you know, some form of eye covering on. Um, I wave at them, I wash my hands, um, I wipe down the equipment, um, I do my thorough exam, um, and then I you know, step back far away and give them my treatment recommendations and um, really just try and make the, the visit pretty abbreviated. Um, and so you know, that's really kind of hurt the patient-physician relationship in the room um, and made it a little bit more cold and terse. Um, and I think it's made it harder for patients to get to know us and see our smiling faces. Um, and I hope that, you know, as we develop cures and vaccines and treatments for this, that some of those restrictions can come off and we can reestablish those um, standards of care. I know as a people person, I find it impossible to not shake my patient's hands or give them a hug. Like there's some patients that I'm like, I would give you a hug, but I can't. So I think that part's kind of tough, I think, for trainees and for physicians. Um, and I'd be curious to see how over the next several months, how... Um, 
how, how often patients are going to want to come into the doctor. I think a lot of our patients are more elderly. Um, and so their hesitations about being in public places or exposing themselves or even our concern of potentially spreading to them may continue to limit the number of patients we see come in. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see how things unfold. Yeah, one thing I saw um, on social media was a, a doctor, uh, I think he was in intensive care. And so he was clearly, you know, mask, gown, um, head covering, the whole thing. He actually printed out a picture of, of him, you know, in his real life. And he, and he pinned it or taped it to the outside of his gown um, <laughs> so that people could see that he's a real person. He's not just a, you know, robot that is, you know, all, all geared up. I think that was a really nice way of trying to humanize the situation that seems, you know, you guys are probably too young to, to have watched ET, but Blake, do you remember ET when they're like in those tubes and like, there's all this medical gear and it's like, ET's got some weird disease and you know, like that's where I feel like we're at right now with, with all of this, these precautions and you know, it's clearly needed. It, it's, 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 um, we need more of it as a matter of fact, but it seems dehumanizing yeah. and it seems uh, really, um, hard and not any, I'm the same way. Like I'm a hugger. If you see me at a meeting, you're probably going to get a big hug or, you know, <laughs> at least a side hug. And, and I think that's over now. I, I mean, Blake, is that over? Are yeah. we not doing that anymore? No, there's always going to be a place for a hug, especially <laughs> Gary hug, because I feel, I thought I've always found that Gary given the best hugs. Um, you know, I think that, um, I, I think that the best way to humanize anything is with humor. Uh, because robots not, robots aren't funny. Humans are funny, and, um, and and that guy putting that little picture on the outside of his you know Chernobyl gear um, uh, that's funny, and I think that brings people in. And you know, you just mentioned being a people person, and I am too. Um, I, I think that in the post-COVID world, the people persons of the world um, are gonna are gonna flourish because you know we're gonna use humor before we go into exam lane. We're gonna say something along the lines of, "Hey, I don't want you to get my cooties." So I'm not going to talk much when I'm examining you, but I'm going to, I'm going to step in the back of the room so you don't smell me. And uh, we're going to talk about whatever's going on. So just a, a, just something that's simple like that, that uses humor to deflect the, the tension is important. And I also think this is a place where people, persons um, like ourselves on this call are going to do really good with telemed, you know, and that's the place that you can, you know, strike up that conversation. That's the place that you, they can see your smile. Um, that's the place that you can ask about their family um, and, and all those things that you would normally do in the clinic. Um, and you could even give them a, a sort of a heads up, hey, when I see you for real in a couple of weeks, it's going to be like this and this. You can sort of set their expectations. And I think by doing that, you're going to make them feel much more comfortable. What about masks? I'm, I just want to like go through each one. Do you think that we're going to be seeing people in N95 masks in any sort of public place for the next forever? I mean, I kind of think that. I mean, I'm... I'm in Kentucky, not necessarily known to be super progressive, um, although Lexington's quite nice. I love it. Um, <laughs> that's almost like a Trump impersonation. I'm sorry about that. Um, but anyways, <laughs> I digress. Um, there are people here wearing masks everywhere. And you know, this was something that I just never saw happening in America, but I really do think this is kind of the new normal. Do you all think that we are going to be seeing patients wearing masks or just in the general public people wearing masks for the foreseeable future. Nandini, we'll start with you. I think so. I think at least for the next maybe like four to six months, we will. People are scared and I don't think they know what the actual finality of this whole situation is. So I think 
people are going to do whatever they need to, to to at least calm themselves down and keep themselves safe. I mean, I find it I find it hard to keep six feet away from people. Like I'm I'm running on the road and people are automatically crossing the street when they see me on the on, on a certain side. Or I was at a UPS store trying to sign something and the and the UPS like I guess salesperson steps back six feet while I come up to sign something. So so these small societal changes I think may become a bit more pervasive than I think we want them to be. Um, just until I think there's, I don't know, maybe, you know, definitive treatments or lowering number of cases or just a sense of like national understanding that things are on the decline. Sheree, what's your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, in Philadelphia, we're definitely very concerned because we, we are predicted to be the next epicenter. So my building, my residential building actually just sent an email today uh, requiring everyone to wear a mask uh, if they leave their apartment which is a huge change. I mean, we were, we provided masks for patients, but I never thought about it out in the real world. And I would say, you know, it's probably more often than not than I see people in the grocery stores or out in public wearing some kind of mask, which was really um, a shock when I first saw it. So I think in Philadelphia, it's definitely going to be a norm until like none of these other something definitive. Dagny? Um, my patient today was wearing a 95 mask. I was like, hey, where'd you get those? Those are in short supply. <laughs> but um, I think the mayor just released a mandate that uh, parts of Los Angeles, or Riverside County, I think Los Angeles County, you'll be fined if you're not wearing a mask in public. Um, they're recommending all people wear masks to essential businesses when they're out grocery shopping or even going to a doctor's office. So here it's already like <laughs> mandated. So I definitely think we'll be seeing it for a while. I do think it's important to point out that um, we should try to save the medical grade PPE for our healthcare staff who's on the front lines. And I mean, they're suffering such a great shortage. And I think for the public, cloth masks will be fine. Um, and I think that's what the CDC recommends as well. Um, so hopefully the public will heed that, but I have seen N95s all around. <laughs> yeah. David, what, what are things looking like down in Georgia? Um, are, I know that Georgia, um, had a little bit of a slower response, um, but you know, what, what are things like there? Are you seeing people wearing masks and you think that's going to continue? Yeah, I think we're, you know, my city uh, is a little bit different from Albany or Atlanta where they're seeing, you know, increased case spikes. Um, I think so much of this is driven by the media and so much of it is driven by people's fear. Um, and until those two things really stop broadcasting, uh, we're just going to keep seeing it. And that's fine. Um, I'm, I'd rather have people take more precaution than less. Um, I think I've been known around the clinic to take way more precaution than probably I should have. Um, and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, we were the ones that were cutting the, the uh, slit lamp shields out for our slit lamps. And uh, I was hoping that, you know, all the residents would at least get some eye protection. And um, as a surgical team, we were given N95s wear in the OR, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and so I think greater precaution at this point is uh, okay. So yeah, Asian countries have been doing it for a long time. And so I think the CDC made the recommendation because they do think it helps the transmission because possibly most of us are already exposed and we're, we're asymptomatic patients are spreading it. So that's why they advise everyone to wear Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting if we do get good data that the uh, uh, people who have antibodies are more or less protected, if we will see some level of like identification bracelet um, denoting that you have immunity. Um, I don't know if that's really sounds crazy, but 
Um, you know, I think that was in Contagion that they did that, but it makes <laughs> sense, you know, that you're, if yeah. you, don't have, you know, if you don't have um, a vaccine that, um, you know, you either have to be wearing a mask or have some identification that you are, uh, you, know, an, a, you know, immune to the disease. Um, Blake, any final thoughts uh, or questions for our guests? I want to respect their time. I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you all uh, today. It's been fantastic and um, been inspiring, as a matter of fact. Yeah, you know, Gary, I agree with you. I think that many of the things that are affecting young ophthalmologists and, and ophthalmologists in training are, are some of the similar things that are affecting us that are already kind of out in, in the real world. And our friend Bindu just uh, made a comment on the Q&A that, you know, she talked to a young ophthalmologist recently who, um, you know, is struggling with, you know, uh, she, this, this, this doctor had just gotten out in the real world and now, now they're struggling with the CARES Act and, you know, PPP and, and how do you navigate that? And uh, that would be a good topic for young ophthalmologists, but that's a topic for everyone, and, and I agree with her. So I would just direct everyone listening to over to iWire uh, and to iTube because all of these off-the-grid COVID series that Gary and I have been doing um, uh, are on there. Uh, and like I said, I think they're, they're important for, for anyone, no matter where you're at in training. But um, uh, for all you guys and gals here, uh, we really appreciate the conversation and learning from all of you. Uh, I look forward to more Survive and Thrive. Uh, podcast as we go forward and just wish all of you uh, stay safe and look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, before we before we sign off, how can we follow you guys um, on social? Uh, let us know if, if there's any preferred platform you all have. Um, who wants to go first? Shuri. Shuri, tell us. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Shuri, which is C-H-E-R-I-E-I-M-D. Okay. Love my Twitter. Dagny? Uh, I'm on Instagram. My uh, handle is DZIMD. <laughs> DZIMD. Got it. DZEYEMD. Okay. And Nandini, any way we can follow you or keep track? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I just made one, which is very exciting. Awesome. Um, at, at Nandini Venkat MD. Okay. And David, can we keep up with you in any, any social media platform? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Felmology. At Felmology. Uh, Is that F-E-L? F-E-L-M-O-L-O-G-Y. Mm -hmm. -E Excellent. And Gary, Gary, I'm on TikTok as uh, Tiger King for president. <laughs> Very good. I'm looking forward to all those TikTok videos with you and, and, your, and your crew there. Um, I, I get, again, I just want to, in closing, I want to thank you all for, for joining us um, and coming on, giving your perspectives. Um, we're going to have um, all four of, of these guests on um, for a number of other series as we go through the Survive and Thrive series. I also want to just put out a special challenge to um, all the ophthalmologists out there who are, um, you know, stable and have great jobs looking for younger ophthalmologists. Um, find, find a younger ophthalmologist that you can mentor, that you can invest in, and if you're bringing people into practice, um, understand it's going to be a little bit more of a transition and a little more handholding, but that's on us to do that. So uh, with that, thank you all very much for coming on and sharing this with us tonight. Until next time. Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, herein BMC, 
along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.